Welcome to episode 125. Today, Dr. Hilda Martinez-Alba and Dr. Luis Javier Benton Herrera will share about their book called Social Emotional Learning in the English Language Classroom, Fostering Growth, Self-Care, and Independence. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. If we are only teaching for content and language development, then we are only teaching half of the curriculum. Sure, we want our students to develop high levels of proficiency in all of the language domains and all of the languages, but we also want students to know how to manage their emotions, develop positive relationship with others, and make responsible decisions. And as we teach students to add English to their linguistic toolkit, we can also use that opportunity to develop emotional intelligence. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so honored to host Dr. Gilda Martinez-Alba and E, Dr. Luis Javier Panton Herrera on the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Martin Alba and Dr. Benton Herrera. Thank, Thank you, you so time. much for having us. Uh, well, your name came up and because of Twitter. Someone was talking about like, oh, SEL, social emotional learning, oh, and multilinguals. And like your name and your book came up and it was like, has anyone read this book? And like several people were like, yes, yes, it's great. You need to have them on the podcast. And I was like, enough said. Let's get them on. So I'm so excited for you to write a very niche book for our community. Thank you. It's, it was truly a pleasure. And thank you for sharing this story with us, because let me tell you, I'm not very techie, so I don't have, um, what was it, um, Twitter, you said, or Instagram? I don't have any of those. So thank you for letting me know what's happening on that side of the world, you know, like the technology world. I'm, I'm glad that people are talking about our book. So thank you so much. Sure, and Luis sure. needs to give himself a little bit more credit, I have to tell you, because Luis is out there on LinkedIn all the time posting and on Facebook. So you you do you do do some tech stuff, maybe not Twitter. Those but. two. Those two I do. Yes. LinkedIn and Facebook. Yes. Very true. <laughs> well, you're busy, right? So you're you're deep in creating research and writing about the research and writing books. And so I, we, you don't have to be on Twitter, but there's a, a community of uh, fans already there for both of you. That's wonderful. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> so let's start with the backstory. Uh, can you each share an experience that has informed your practice with multilinguals to this day? Um, well, I, I can uh, start if that's okay, Hilda. Yes, um, of course. So, thank you. So definitely, I would say my, um, my practice with multilingual learners is 100% guided by my own experience as a language learner because I arrived to the United States at the age of 17 
And it was very, very, very difficult. And I always tell this to my students because I want them to understand that, you know, you can go through through uh, difficulty, but still learn the language. And for me, English was very difficult. It took me a long time to um, learn English. So every time I'm teaching my students, whether it's English learners or even in Spanish classes, because I teach both, um, you know, I, um, I'm always, I always try to channel my 17-year-old self and think about those emotions that I was experiencing. And, um, you know, in many ways, I think that um, when I'm teaching, I hope that everything I do and, and to support my multilingual learners is um, channeling the, the, the teacher that I wish I had when I was in that position. So that's definitely something that guides my practice. Well, and um, I too was a multilingual learner. I grew up in um, and was born in Miami, Florida, where the majority of the population was and still is Latinx. And so I have to say, when I moved up here to Maryland, it was quite the culture shock. And um, I was 19, I guess I was naive, and I didn't realize that there were no Cubans or not very many at all here in Maryland. And um, so, you know, when I went to the grocery store for the first time, the Hispanic section was like part of an aisle when I was used to the whole grocery store being Hispanic or Latinx, you know, um, filled with my goodies. But here I had only a little section in an in a aisle in the grocery store. And so, you know, I was, I was feeling lost. I was, and that was like the first time I really appreciated my heritage. Yeah. So when I became a teacher, I really wanted to help my multilingual learners. And so I would establish rapport with them. You know, I would connect with the families, really help them understand the educational system so that, you know, that that would be maybe one less thing they had to worry about since they, you know, that they might be estranged from their family too, amongst many other things, just like I was. And, um, and then so I created, you know, workshops for families. Later, I created courses and programs. I became a reading specialist. And so I did, you know, everything was always focused on helping my multilingual learners because like Luis was saying, um, I wanted to have the students experience, you know, what I would have liked. You t both touched on the same concept of like, I wish I had a teacher like this. Would you go back and both talk uh, in separately and talk about what kind of teacher did you wish you had at that time at 17 for Dr. Herrera and then for you, Dr. Martinez? for at 19. Yeah, so for me, um, I'm, I'm, perhaps it's, it's my experiences. I do believe that language is, language learning, language teaching is very, very much connected to emotions, affective concerns, right? Um, of course, motivation is there, but also that inter interchange uh, or exchange, as I should say, about how we feel and how those emotions play a part in, in, in how we are willing to um, engage in language learning or not, you know. So I, I wish my um, teachers back then were more aware of how emotions affect language teaching and language learning. And not only in, inside ourselves as our students, but also how making strong relationships, strong connections with our, our students, how that affects also positively language teaching and learning. Um, I still believe that, um, and, and this will probably be my, my belief for, for my entire career, I do, I do think that you cannot teach someone that you do not know. So if you don't make real connections with people, with students, 
how can you teach them? How can you, if you don't know what that person needs from you? Um, and and I, I experienced this, for example, in adults. Um, I remember a novice teacher, I started with adult learners teaching, um, volunteering for uh, ESOL courses for adults. Um, and I remember I, I, I tried to teach them like grammar and all of these things. And, you know, that's kind of like what you're, what you learn in teacher preparation programs. But then I realized that something was not clicking and um, perhaps not in these words, because I was still very novice, very new into the field. But then uh, one day, uh, one of them told me, can you just teach me about this? Like, it was something very, very um, specific to their reality, you know, how to um, like if, if they were ordering food at McDonald's, how can he do that? You know, like very basic things that they need right away in life. And then that allowed me to really understand, you know what, I need to learn more about them so I can teach them something that they really need. And um, that also motivated them because then they, they were more willing to do activities. And um, yeah, so I'm sorry, I think I, I went on a tangent here, like on a memory lane. But was that your question? <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking if, if I'm going back to like when I moved to Maryland and I was 19, I was at, at the college age, I was going to the community college. So at, if I'm thinking at, of that age, um, what I really would have liked for teachers to do and for just the, the college to do would be to um, to give me to, to point out the resources that are available, because, you know, I as a as a, you know, not, I wasn't first generation, I would say like 1.5 um, uh, college student. And so my family didn't, didn't know, I guess, enough to tell me, you know, these are the grant sources. These are the scholarship sources. You know, you should look into this, that you really need to focus over here, focus over there. And my, my college teachers didn't do that either. And the advisor, you know, would just tell you, Oh, these are the courses you need to sign up for. And that was about it. So I didn't really get the, the financial support that would have been so helpful. And so as many students, you know, if you don't know how to how to navigate that system, which is so complicated, um, then you end up in a lot more debt than you really need to be in. So um, so I wish that the teachers, you know, would think about that piece. And I know a lot of them do, and I think more so um, as people are thinking about the students that they do have, you know, that are in front of them, you know, what are the, their needs. But a lot of times, you know, when you come from another country um, or your family does, you know, they don't know necessarily what are the resources here. So really helping students with that financial aspect, I think would have been really good. And also the other piece that I know that my students um, that I work with um, struggle with and have told me they would really like, and I would have loved it too, is to have a mentor, you know, some structured mentoring program for your um, multilingual learners that are, you know, trying to succeed in your in your you know university or you know in school K to twelve. And so, what do they have? What what other networks do they have to help them be on the classroom? So, those are the two things that came to mind. Again, both of your stories have something in common. It if teachers get to know students more, they will get to know students' needs. You both talked about that. So let's talk about your book, Chapter One. Uh, Luis, would you talk about what's the case for SCL in TESOL? Yes, thank you so much for, for the question. And I have to uh, just very briefly show the book. <laughs> so just for our audience, but um, you know, our book, it's, it was truly, let me tell you, our book was, was something that um, 
I think we, we both truly enjoy writing. And uh, when we were thinking about social emotional learning, um, it was it, it, we were writing this at the time of COVID, but we, we wrote this book with a, a longer lens, longer uh, lens beyond COVID and, and social emotional learning as being part of uh, language teaching and learning during the pandemic, but also after uh, becoming a core element of, of language teaching. And, um, you know, we begin our chapter one, chapter one of our book with a short vignette and um, really all the chapters with vignettes, but specifically chapter one, this is where we make the case for social and emotional learning. And uh, this particular chapter one narrates a very profound experience that I had during my first year of high school uh, teaching, teaching English as a second language in high school. And uh, would it be okay if I write a, uh, if I uh, read to you a very short uh, vignette of, of that excerpt? So this is something that readers can um, can see in the book. It says, Mariela, which is a pseudonym, it's not a real name, is an 18-year-old newcomer English learner who recently arrived in the United States. Upon arrival, Mariela was placed in ninth grade because of her English proficiency level and also because she has some gaps in formal schooling. When Mariela arrived in the United States, she reunited with her father and mother after being separated from them for 11 years. In school, Mariela was having a difficult time establishing supporting human connections with her peers. She often made jokes in the classroom, laughed out loud, and attracted her classmates' attention during instruction. Her ESOL teacher, <laughs> firmly asked her many times to stop talking and distract her, her um, and distracting her classmates. But Mariela would just laugh out loud in response. Because Mariela's behavior was not improving, the ESOL teacher called Mariela, Mariela's parents one day as a final measure. While talking to Mariela's parents on the phone, Mariela's father requested that the teacher send Mariela to a juvenile detention center because they did not know how to improve her behavior either. The ESO teacher, shocked, explained to the parents that this was not something he could do. And the conversation ended at that juncture. Mariela misbehavior continued for a couple of weeks following that phone call. And after being escorted out of the classroom a few times, Mariela stopped attending school. And, uh, you know, uh, Tan, after, um, this is something that happened to me in real life and you'll you'll see also in chapter one how i kind of reflect i think teacher reflection is so important in teaching in teaching and in, in, in just in pedagogy in general because you really have the opportunity to grow not only as a teacher but as a human being mm -hmm. and i kept wondering um with mariela but also with other students who sometimes they just drop out of school and i always felt like i failed them in some way somehow i kept saying i kept saying what would it be, uh, you know, what could be, would have been something that I would have done that would have made them stay or what would I have done differently if I could go back or how could I help or support my students? And then I realized that uh, social emotional learning was one of the ways that I could have changed my pedagogy, my way of approaching situations like this, for example, but also help my students not only in school to succeed in school but also beyond the classroom because social emotional learning is not about just in the classroom and about behavior it's, it's providing students with the opportunity to learn the skills they're going to use in the classroom and as adults you know how to manage our emotions how to be emotionally intelligent all of these things are going to 
work very much in their favor when they're, they're adults looking for jobs, when they're professionals in their fields. These are some things, some things that we have to deal with as adults every day in our lives. And uh, that's something that we're not teaching children in schools. Um, yes, you know, math, science, uh, languages, all of this is wonderful. But how do we deal with emotions? Emotions is something that we're, we're human beings. Emotions are always there, always present. How do we regulate our behaviors? How do we learn from experiences that may or may not be something that we, we expected? You know, all of these things are um, social emotional learning. How do we become socially responsible citizens? What does that mean in the first place? Um, you know, um, having those conversations, those are the skills that social emotional learning allows students to, to engage in. And also, um, and, and gain, and also specifically because English language classrooms, language classrooms in general, what a better way to, to talk about social emotional learning than language, right? Language is, is, the, is the bridge, is, is the, the, the way that we convey our communication, our emotions, our feelings. So having the opportunity to, to explain how you feel and understand how other people feel, that's the magic of language classrooms. And um, so, yes, that's my answer. I think, again, I went on a, on a tangent here, but I just, as you can see, I'm very passionate about the topic. So thank you for that question. We'll keep the passion coming on because I think that we all have, have Mariela's in our, in our lives, right? And we wish we always would go back. I still wish I would go back and I can find my first year, first year of teaching students. I want to come back and be like, I just want to apologize for things I did to you. I just want to go back and redo it all. Can you come back and, even though you're 27, 30, some, like my kids are now like 27, the first years, can I come back and reteach this? Because I now I know so much. And I think Dr. Maya Angelou said, we do the best, uh, we do the best when we can. When we know better, we do better, right? And so every time we, we teach now, everything, everything we know, every article we read, every video we watch, every experience we have, it informs us now and it, and it makes us better. We wish we could have done better back then. We forgive ourselves for what we didn't know before and that's okay. Let's talk about chapter two. Uh, Gilda, would you talk about what's the different frameworks have in common and the three different strategies? Sure. Um, so I have to go back and say, say that working with Luis has been just such a pleasure. I mean, we we were, I think it really actually helped me get through COVID. And I know we're still in COVID, but I feel like we're we're coming up from or breathing, you know, for the first time in a long time. But um, but thank you, Luis, I have to say, for um for the idea of this book because um it really helped me. I mean, it was such a motivating topic to write about that it has helped me actually with the uh with, with helping, you know, just getting through this, this period. But, um, but anyways, to answer your question, the, um, the SEL's competencies are the essential knowledge, skills, attitudes, and mindsets that um, individuals need to succeed. And these are actually common across all of the frameworks. So some of the strategies that we share in the book, um, a lot of times we highlight teachers to, um, to be able to share and demonstrate, you know, from different perspectives throughout the world. So, for example, we have um, one is Mamiko Nakata. She works in Japan at a university. And she says that what she likes to do is she uses reading materials that help um, English learners identify, label, and express their emotions. And so she says that with that, she's able to um, really get to know her students, connect with their students, and help them 
with their emotions. Something else that I didn't include in the book, but I really like to use are wordless books and wordless picture books. And I find those so helpful because even if a student can't read in um, English yet, or they can't read even in their native language, it's something that they could connect to. They could look at the pictures, they could have a dialogue and they could talk about their emotions. And when I've used the wordless picture books with families, I find that they are, they just light up, you know, especially if they're um, maybe not literate in their own language, because then they find something, an activity that they can actually participate in. They can feel very comfortable talking about what they see in the book, what's happening in the book and, and sharing their emotions. Another strategy that um, I like to use is technology. So Luis has said he's not techie. I like to think of myself as techie. And so something that I've used um, many times and I have found that students find it very um, helpful for eliminating or reducing anxiety is using poster sessions. So just like you would see in a conference maybe where people create a poster and then they have to do a presentation based off of that poster, um, you could have students create posters online. There's a variety of different websites that make uh, help you, you know, help them make it look very professional, but it also gives them the time to create it, right? So that that's, you know, something that without the time pressure, they can make it look good. They can make it sound good. And then because they're presenting it in as a poster session, just like in conferences, they only have to do it to a few people at a time. And then they get to practice their oral language skills multiple times again and again. They share it again and again to a couple people, a couple people. And I know that when I've asked students, you know, after we finish our poster session, um, would you have rather just to do it one time to the whole class and just be done with it, get it over with? And they always say, no, 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 no. They, they really appreciate doing it in a poster session and they really like doing it um, online because then, you know, like I said, it looks professional. It looks really clean and, um, and they get the time to practice it. So, and then the, the third strategy I wanted to share with you is the importance of connecting with others. And again, we have in our book, a highlighted teacher. So in this case, we have Nakia Darden and she works here in Maryland. She's actually a reading specialist. And she talks about how she likes to connect with um, her ESOL teacher and other teachers to tailor curriculum to meet the needs of multilingual learners using visuals to highlight their cultures. But, um, but as we know, you know, as the saying goes, it takes a village. So really the more that um, you can connect with others, you know, whether it's the reading specialist, the school counselor, or the speech language pathologist, the other teachers, et cetera, um, I think it's, it's really helpful for our English learners so that you can help meet their needs as best as possible. So of all the three strategies, I love them. And the one I think uh, that I consistently hear the most is the use of stories, right? And so I interviewed David Bolt from the Positive School Institute from Melbourne, Australia, and he talked about how stories is one of the most effective vehicle for transmitting um, lessons because there are characters and they deal with things and students can start to see their own experience live through characters. And I love that you talked about wordless picture books because they allow for and they encourage for participation at an equal level, right? There's no words, but everyone can read pictures, right? And so parents can be involved. And so even, even if they're not literate in their first language, 
they can still participate using the images. It's great. Yeah, and um, a lot of times when I do mention this with teachers, um, they say, oh, I have one or, oh, I have two. So I worked with um, a group of teachers and created a book called Wordless Books, So Much to Say, so that teachers can, um, can easily pick up wordless books and, and do lessons with them. So it, it works on um, reading, listening, speaking, and writing skills. But, um, but yeah, because I really want teachers to use wordless picture books as much as possible because I've had such a positive experience with them. Well, that is another podcast in the making. Yes, time. Sounds and good. I want to add, let me tell you, uh, um, Hilda's book is actually a bestseller at Tissot Press, so highly recommend. And also that, you know, wordless books is something that we wish we had included in this book. So that's definitely something that um, we're, we're sharing here with, with your viewers right now. That's a future project for Hilda and I. We don't know when we're going to work on it, but wordless books and social emotional learning, it's, it's something that we're, we're definitely looking forward to. It's, um, it's our next project, I, I would say. <laughs> yes, well, yes. When you're ready for that project, we will have you back to share because the last time I had a, a, a teacher from an international school in Frankfurt share her experience, people just really appreciated that as well. It's really practical. Yes, and uh, if I may also add, Tan, uh, one more thing. In in the we were talking earlier about um, you know out, outside of the podcast how uh, this book about students with limited or interrupted formal education, how we have different authors. Hilda actually uh, wrote a book. Uh, I wrote a chapter in the book about um, using wordless books for families, and it, it really speaks to what you were saying about how through wordless books we can really include everyone. It doesn't matter if you have, um, you know, print literacy in your native language or not. It's really uh, an opportunity, a tool that you can use to bring everyone, invite everyone into the conversation and use everyone's funds of knowledge. So uh, absolutely, that's that's another podcast that we have to plan. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. You're, the podcast is always here for you and support your projects. Thank you. Let's move to the third chapter when both of you can answer this. Can you talk about teacher self-care? I need to read this chapter twice. <laughs> yes, teacher self-care, let me tell you, it's such an important topic. And um, I, I want to say that in, in our book and in the work that we did for social emotional learning, we really um, thought of and, and, and explained teacher self-care as the foundation for social emotional learning. and. Anyone can argue that, you know, there are uh, different stakeholders that are foundational to social emotional learning, perhaps the curriculum, the students. We believe that teachers are the heart of social emotional learning because you, you cannot have social emotional learning without teachers. And uh, with that in mind, we're also explaining that um, in, in, in this book, but also in, in projects that we're extending after this book and, and that we, we are working on, we're really thinking about teacher self-care and um, teacher well-being as, as a responsibility, not only of the teachers, but also of the entire institution. And when we say institution, we say the educational field, because um, we have been seeing very often um, that teacher self-care, and then we've heard, we've heard from, from, our, um, from our colleagues, from our uh, friends, teacher friends and colleagues, how many times in, in the school districts, for example, teacher self-care is just, uh, let's do a breathing exercise at the beginning of the uh, teacher, um, you know, uh, workshop, and then we'll give you a lot of, of 
things that you have to do and you have to complete it. And then if you don't take care of yourself, it's your responsibility. Well, that's really not teacher self-care. Teacher self-care is it, going back to um, what um, Sarah Mercer um, wrote about recently. It's, it's an ecology, right? So we cannot think of teacher well-being, teacher self-care as only their responsibility, but as, as the responsibility of, of everyone. So our leaders in the institution giving teachers the tools, the space, the time they need to take care of themselves. So um, that's something very important when we think about teacher self-care, teacher well-being. We, we have to stop thinking that it's all on the teachers. As we know, teachers have a lot on their shoulders and they're carrying pretty much the entire uh, classroom and, and the, the entire teaching, you know, it's on, on their shoulders. So we have to provide the means, the tools, the space, the time, the opportunities for them to be able to engage in, in, in self-care. We cannot add self-care as an additional responsibility, as a burden to teachers, because then that contributes to burnout. So um, that, that was just kind of like my part with teacher self-care, but I'll, I'll let Hilda uh, continue here. <laughs> no, no, that's so true, Luis. And, um, you know, and I was thinking along those lines that, you know, what, what happens a lot of times with teachers is, you know, you go, you really connect with your students, you establish rapport, you get to know their stories. And then as a result, you know, sometimes teachers may experience um, secondary trauma. You know, they might be sad, they might get depressed. And so, um, so yeah, so the self-care, you know, for wellness is so, is so important to help teachers be able to work on themselves so that then they can help their students. Um, in the book, we have an example of another teacher and her name is Tina Ruiz. And she actually works in Baltimore City as an ESOL teacher. And she says that um, something that she was doing on her own was to, she started to sign up for um, races, like uh, 5Ks, and also for exercise classes because it was something she wasn't doing in the past. And she said that as a result, she actually feels stronger today than she ever has as a teacher and as a person. So, I mean, it just goes to show that something like that, you know, taking the time for yourself to, to work on your, on your mental and physical um, health, aside from your work, can help your whole life, you know, um, be more balanced. So I think that's something really, really important for teachers to consider. But as Luis was saying, it shouldn't all be on the teachers. It really needs to be um, institutionalized. Right. right. So self-care isn't selfless. How do we, uh, you talked about ecology, I love that idea. How, what can we do to encourage systems, school systems to provide that time for self-care? Or what ideas can we do, can we in, implement? Well, we're, uh, we're actually, this is a, a, a fairly, I would say, fairly new topic, field, uh, I, I think, uh, of study. And there are definitely some publications out there but some of the things that we're learning, we're actually working on a project right now uh, about teacher well-being. So, uh, but you know, some of the things that we're learning is that teachers do need space, do need time, do need uh, they do need also um, the opportunity to to engage in self-care. Not because if they don't do it, you know, and, and burned out, and they feel burned out, and stressed, there are going to be consequences. They're going to be punished for it, but because they have the opportunity to engage in, in work-life balance, you know, um, and, and in, in education specifically, we have seen historically 
that uh, when we think about education, teaching, there is this sacrifice component to it. Oh, I have to sacrifice for my students. I have to sacrifice my time, my energy, my this, my that. And, and that's something that we have to stop um, thinking about teaching and sacrifices as going together. We're professionals. Teachers are professionals. So we, we shouldn't have to sacrifice our personal life for our um, professional or even our students, you know, well-being. So um, the first step, I would say, is to listen to what teachers need. And when teachers say, I need this, the institution leaders, the community stakeholders, they, they should provide the support that teachers need. And that's many times that's one of the things that uh, contributes to burnout, to, to stress. The fact that teachers, we're so invested in helping our students. And then many times we feel like we cannot turn around to anyone be for help and it's kind of everything on us and um, I'm just speaking here from from my experience with my English learners and uh, many times we're like yelling aloud you know like my students need help somebody help us please and no one is there to listen and that contributes to you know um, burnout stress and going back to what Hilda was saying secondary stress you know all uh, secondary trauma all of these things um, so definitely listening to teachers and what they need is the first step. Um, but I would say there, there's definitely more that we're learning from. I think that the more research that we're doing, thankfully, there, there's a, you know, kind of blossoming research now about teacher well-being. I hope it continues and it becomes core element of, of, of language teaching. But, um, you know, the more we learn about teacher well-being, I feel like the less I know. So that's kind of like what we're doing. Like, let's continue learning because there is so much more that we need to learn about it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, along those lines, the retention of teachers, you know, is an issue. Right. And so um, we're facing a shortage of teachers in general. So recruitment is problematic. So, I mean, if, if you're already starting the year, you know, um, if, with a shortage of teachers, if at a minimum, we would want to at least want to keep the teachers that you do have. So, you know, having institutions realize that, you know, that um, this is something that can really help with retention, you know, having um, organizations within your school, for example, creating those groups so that teachers can network with each other within, you know, groups that are about wellness, you know, having that time during professional development or, you know, during the, the days that they have to work on, on building themselves, including wellness, um, are things that they can do so that, you know, in the end, we can help with, um, of course, the wellness, but also with uh, retention. Right. I appreciate that because of all the books I've seen on SEL, this is the first book where I've seen SEL and teachers, like taking care of teachers. I'm like, oh yeah, the days that I don't meditate in the morning and do yoga, and then the days that I don't work out in the evening, I know that the next day, ooh, y'all better watch out. <laughs> Well, let me tell you, Tan, uh, actually, uh, we wrote about this and, and Hilda uh, actually uh, shared a ca calendarizing. Uh, what is the word, uh, Hilda? Calendarizing your day, right? Oh, calendarizing. Uh, calendarizing. Calendarizing. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I couldn't, I couldn't say it out loud. Calendarizing your day. <laughs> there you go. And she talks about that, exactly that in, in, in this chapter. Yeah, so in, I, I talk about how you, you if you calendarize your day and you make a point to to just write down, you know, when is it that you're going to incorporate, you know, the yoga or the eating healthy or the, you know, taking time for going for a walk and going outside, being with nature, you know, even if it's walking around the block, going to the park, 
um, doing, making time for those things. Because a lot of times we, you know, people say, oh, I don't have time. I don't have time, but you have to make time. So, so for example, something that I started to do was on the way to work, you know, rather than always listening to the news, I would listen to podcasts that were motivational. And then that way, you know, by the time I get to work, my, my commute is close to an hour. Um, it gives me enough time to actually get there and feel good as opposed to get there and feel like, oh, you know, all these things are happening in the world. So not to say that I don't want to stay on top of the news, but sometimes it's good to unplug and, and listen to something for yourself. So, yeah, just things like that, that, you know, that you can easily or more easily incorporate, but making a point to to write it down so that you do it, you know, um, as opposed to always saying, oh, I could do this but I don't have time. So what's the podcast that you listen to that motivates you? Well, I vary them up quite a bit, but um, I really like, I'm, I'm kind of a a science person. So I like science versus, I don't know if you've seen that one or heard that one, but that's one of my favorites science versus and every weekend or every, I don't know how often it is, but they, they vary the topic. So it could be pretty much anything under the sun they talk about. And Louise, what do you do for self-care? Well, for self-care, my dogs are my self-care. <laughs> Everything with my dogs, I walk them. Or as you say, they walk me. We go in the parks. We, um, they, they keep me, you know, anything that um, might be stressful. I think they, they're so in tune with me. So when, they need, when I need a break, they let me know because they start barking and they, they go to the door. Um, so they're, they're training me to walk them whenever I need a break. So uh, everything with my dogs, that's one of the biggest things. But also I've been doing something that I, I used to do a lot and um, for enjoyment. And I forgot that I used to do this is that I write poetry. So I'm hoping that I'll get back to it. I, I wrote a few poems actually when we were writing the book. He, I never told you this, I think. Uh, but no. we were writing. Yes, when we were writing the uh, SEL book. Um, it was truly a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful experience with uh, Hilda. And, and I think, Hilda, I think, we, uh, you know, you were saying that I helped you get through through COVID. I think you helped me get through COVID. So together, it was a wonderful writing experience. And um, I started also, you know, with that, um, I had a lot of uh, inspiration and, and, and motivation. So I, w- I engage also in a lot of poetry writing, which I have to go back to. But my dogs and poetry, that's um, that's what I do. And, and I'm a runner. So running all the time. <laughs> so you're giving both of us, you both of you have been, uh, have given examples of very free, no cost activities that you already do anyway. to to self care It's just making that time that calendarizing your time for self care, right? I love that. Absolutely. Let's move to chapter four, talking about, um, to advocating for mindfulness in SEO classrooms. Hilda, you talk about that? Sure. Um, well, mindfulness is the practice of slowing down, really organizing your thoughts and reacting to your surroundings so that you keep in mind the big picture. Focus and awareness are key. And so in our book, we have another example, Kristen Vig from New York, and she talks about optimism meditation, which she shares as feelings or beliefs that good things are going to happen or that you're looking at the bright side right and um with it what she does is she has the students um, either stand up or sit down have their hands to their sides and then she um either says the word optimism or she says every time you think of something optimistic you know 
to raise your hands and make like a sun and smile. And so while she has them doing this activity, she's like lowered the lights, maybe puts on some music, but really takes, takes the time in her class to get the students to um, focus on the good things in their life. And, um, and she says that she finds that this really helps them focus on the goals in their classroom then because they have detached themselves from what whatever they were experiencing in their homes or in their life previous you know to coming into her class and so um i advocate for it because it, i think it really does provide a means to focus on what's important when you're outside of the class because as teachers you know we want to help our students not just succeed in our academics but to have the life skills to help them throughout time so so that's why I advocate for it. But yes, I think Kristen Vig just does such a uh, has such a positive outlook with her students doing this um, optimism meditation that I thought it was it was noteworthy in our in our book and noteworthy here in this podcast. I think it's noteworthy in the field period because more and more teachers are incorporating mindfulness practice to help kids. And I've seen it in my own school uh, at an international school in Vietnam. And I was like, wow, the f- the fourth graders that came to me in this particular class, mm-hmm. I was like. Oh, I know who was your teacher. You had the meditating teacher. Let's move to chapter five. What is peace education and how can we implement it? Yes, um, thank you. Thank you for that question. In chapter five, we talk a little bit about uh, peace education. And, you know, in simple terms, when we think about peace education is is the the practice, the pedagogy of teaching of teaching students the skills, the the behaviors, the attitudes to um, conserve peace through conflict resolution. So it's, it's the, the, the practice of resolving or preventing conflict to um, preserve peace. And when we think about peace, we usually think about outside, outside peace or external peace, but also, you know, when we think about peace, we should also think about inner conflicts, which as we know, when we have inner conflicts, especially children, uh, many times if they don't have the skills, the abilities, to the attitudes to to deal with inner conflicts then become externalized and that becomes disruptive behavior and all of these things that lead to conflict. And, um, you know, we have we have wonderful, again, I'm, I'm biased because, you know, we work on this, but we have wonderful activities there in peace education in this chapter. But I think one of the biggest, um, uh, most important, I would say no noteworthy for sure, is um, one of the teachers that we feature. And I think this is one of the biggest things for us in our book. We wanted to feature teachers doing these things already because it's really their expertise that is speaking. You know, this is something that teachers are doing that is working for them and their English learners. And we have someone called, um, you know, one of the teachers that we have is Paulina Kurevija, and she's actually an elementary ESOL teacher in Canada. And she shared with us a beautiful, beautiful activity that she does with her elementary children and she calls the activity five, four, three, two, one in nature. And, uh, you know, the she talks a little bit about her students and they're most of them refugees with uh, who arrive in the, her classroom with trauma. So for her, peace education and, and connecting students with nature is very important. Inner peace, right, to build inner peace and to preserve inner peace. So, you know, she describes her, this activity where they sit on the grass or depending on the weather, on this on the snow, um, you know, and then she prompts her class to talk a little bit about her environment when they go on field trips. Like, for example, she says, tell us five things that you see. And, you know, they're still engaging in language learning and exploring uh, nature. Four things that you hear, three things that you feel, two things that you smell, 
and one thing you're thankful for. And then she also includes more activities there on running with nature and how running helps them also with inner peace. And um, it's just wonderful, highly recommended there. Um, but that's in, in simple terms, that's what peace education is about. Right, I like like structure. It's just providing a really clear way of helping kids think, oh, okay, the senses, using your senses, right? Absolutely, and you're still engaging in language learning, you know, and, and this is something that we, uh, we, we do say throughout the book, and it's very important. Social emotional learning is not additional work for teachers. It's just a lens to teach. And, you know, you can teach through this lens of social emotional learning. You're still using languages. You're not doing anything additional to uh, teach language. It's just how your perspective, how you approach language teaching and learning. Right. right. It's integrated within. It's not like, okay, kids, so now we have to do SEL. No, it's like, no, it's integrated as part of the way we learn language. Let's move to chapter six. Please talk about restorative practice as well within the ESO context. Yes, yeah, so restorative, restorative practices, when I was teaching in high school, the last two years of my teaching, I, um, I, I became certified as a, as a circle keeper in my school county that were doing a lot of restorative practices. And let me tell you, I really saw a difference of not only my students' behavior in, in our community, our classroom community, but also in myself as a more uh, reflective teacher. And, you know, re restorative practices, they're, of course, um, grounded in, in traditional indigenous practices from around the world. So we have to acknowledge that and, and uh, share with our audience. And the way that we're using it in um, education, there are different names, restorative practices, restorative justice, but um, most of the time um, schools would do restorative circles or would do different practices there. Um, like for example, effective, um, effective state statements is another practice of restorative practices. And the goal is to repair harm and the reparation of harm and, and harm is, is understood differently. It could be uh, perhaps something that a, a colleague or someone said that may have um, been, you know, understood by another person by the receiving in a different way. So, you know, can we engage in a conversation to talk about this? Uh, it's, it's that, that uh, communication that helps with healing, with the reparation of harm. And one of the uh, teachers that we have there in, in our book featuring chapter six that talks about restorative practices, she's actually my mentor, my, uh, my, my restorative practice mentor. Her name is Robin uh, McNair. She's a wonderful, wonderful human being and wonderful educator. And she shares with us five questions that we can ask our students to implement restorative practices in our classroom. And, and it's very easy. So instead of asking students, for example, why do you do this? Uh, many times students don't understand that question because they can, they cannot externalize their emotions, the, the, what's happening inside of them. So instead, uh, Robin says, okay, so ask these five questions, which is what happened? What were you thinking or feeling at the time? What do you think was affected and how? What do you think you need to do to make things right? So that's the, the repairing harm component right there. What support do you need to do that, to do that healing, that reparation? And, um, you know, this, this questions they give also students, they, they give them a voice, which is also part of restorative practices, giving students a voice and an opportunity to come together to have a conversation about the harm that has been done, but also about the repairing that needs to happen and how they're going to do it.
Right. That structure is beautiful. It just really gives a really clear uh, path to helping kids start with saying, what happened? How did you feel? And then let's move towards the bottom where it's talking about, okay, so how do we repair what was harmed? Right. Is there anything else that you uh, both want to add before I go to the last activity question? Well, um, I would like to add that for teachers, when, when they read the book, I hope that they see that um, this book was really written from our hearts to them as a teaching um, tool for them that they can use with their learners. So I hope that they, they find it helpful and um, that they see that, you know, this is something that, that we, we did with our own learners. So it's, it's written from experience, from, from something that, that comes from our, our own teaching practices. And um, I hope that they can find it helpful all of the chapters. Yeah, and I, and I think also that, that, you know, we wrote it on our experience and we tried to share a lot of teachers' voices so that people could see, you know, how it works for different classrooms. But I think also, um, I really hope that they use it and make it work for them. So, you know, if there's something that they want to tweak or whatever, I mean, none of the things that we shared are necessarily have to be done in that particular way. It's, it's all it's all, you know, make it your own so that you can really, um, you know, feel like, like we were saying, own the chapters. So you can feel like you own that, that um, strategy or that learning activity. And, um, and you can really be invested and passionate about it. Yes. And, you know, that's a, that's a wonderful point, Hilda. And, and we keep saying that throughout the book, social emotional learning is not meant to be a program. It's not a one size fits all. So these are recommendations that we're giving our teachers, our readers, so they can, they can use that as a guide, but as teachers, we know we have to modify everything for our learners. And that's something that we continue to say throughout the chapters. So we know our learners best. So everything that we read, we should, as in everything, you know, in practice, we should know, okay, um, this is what I'm reading. I'm taking this away from, from this reading. And this is how I'm going to use it in my classroom for the benefit of my students. Well, let's end with this question. It's called traffic light teaching. So it's a red light. A red light is something you ask teachers to stop doing in terms of uh, work, working with multilinguals. Uh, a yellow light is something you ask teachers to start doing. Uh, and then the green light is asking, asking them to keep on doing this that they're already doing. So you can take turns doing whatever colors you want. So do we want to start with the red light uh, and then we go together, Hilda, to the yellow and the green? Sure, sure. All right, so if, if you like, I can start with the red light. I would like to ask teachers to stop feeling like they, um, they deserve any blame for anything that goes wrong. Um, and I say this from my experience. If, if things do not work, it could be something as little as, you know what, the lesson plan didn't work today. Tomorrow is going to be a better day. I remember doing that once with my students and one time, and my students were so wonderful. I'm always so grateful to them because they, you know, as novice teachers, we always, um, we make mistakes and, and we, we learn from it. And I remember very distinctively one time I prepare all of these things and, and, you know, I'm like, this is going to be an amazing class. And then I was teaching, my students were not getting it done. And I was like, guys, let's stop here. Tomorrow, I'm going to do something different. This is not working. And they were fine. You know, they were like, okay, didn't work today, you know, and, uh, but I felt so terrible. I keep blaming myself. Like I didn't do this right. I could have done something different. So that's my red light for teachers um, to be, to not be so hard on themselves. And so I guess my red light for teachers 
would be then to not assume that you need to know all the answers, right? Because um, it kind of goes like the next step of what Luis is saying. We, we are learning continuously. And I think, as you mentioned earlier, Tan, that, um, you know, the more you read, the, the more you're learning. And so it's a continual process. It's a lifelong learning process. So I think sometimes we feel like as teachers, we're supposed to know everything. And, it, and you know, we, we like you were saying, Luis, you know, we, we're hard on ourselves. We're our worst critics sometimes. But really just, um, you know, knowing and reminding ourselves more than anything, reminding ourselves that we are, um, it's, it's a lifelong process. And we just, we need to just continue and grow from, from things that may or may not go the way that we want. Let's move to the yellow light, something to start doing. Something to start doing. Absolutely, um, self-care, but again, self-care as an ecological practice, meaning that teachers, we have to come together and let our leaders, our institution know teacher well-being is part of education. And this cannot be a separate conversation anymore. When we're thinking about education, we all have to come together. And th this is also directed to teachers as a, as a like federation of teachers, um, you know, as teacher uh, communities in general. We have to start prioritizing teacher well-being as essential part of teaching and learning. And so for me, the yellow light would be that, you know, the social emotional learning strategies, a lot of times, you know, we're thinking for our students, for our students, but a lot of these can work for us too. So, you know, to continue using them for yourself as well as, you know, if you are great, if you, you know, continue doing that and building on those, because I think that, um, that it's just so important to, to always keep ourselves in mind. First, I feel I have an example that I like to use that's um, if you ever have flown and you, you see the flight attendant say, um, make sure if you're traveling with the child or a small one, put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you put it on your, on your child because you have to take care of yourself before you can take care of others. And so I think that's, that's really key so it goes with the self-care, but also um, but also the social emotional learning in general, because there's a lot of different strategies and tips that we give for students, but those are things that you know teachers can do for themselves. And the green light, something to uh, keep on doing. I would say my green light is to tell teachers to keep being amazing. I always say that the best people I know are teachers. It takes a special human being to be a teacher. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a vocation, it's a dedication that we have, it's, it's a calling. And um, I think that's, you know, I think that it encapsulates everything when I, when I talk about teachers, they're the best people I know. So being, being, continue being wonderful like you are. Well, and I second that. And also something to um, continue doing is keep connecting with, you know, your students and their families because you know, the more that you can connect with them, the better you can help them um, understand themselves, understand how to get through you know, school and also understand how to navigate life. So, so just keep connecting with them. Well, uh, let me end with this. You talked about a student, a fictional student, um, a pseudonym student named Marielle, and it just tugged at my heart in the beginning. And I was thinking, oh, you know what? You're, who you're writing this for? You're writing this book for all the teachers who have Marielle's in their lives so that they can help her stay in school with their practices of SEL. So thank you both for helping us, for lighting the way for us.
Thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to talk to you and your audience. We're very grateful. We are. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. This is now my third episode I did on SEL. The red thread that runs throughout all these other podcasts on SEL is that social emotional learning is needed for MLs as they learn to acquire and add their languages. Learning a language in a new context is quite difficult and stress-inducing. SEL can reduce that stress and help students develop the tools to manage their stress. More importantly, it's essential to teach students because we want to develop these skills for a successful and engaged life. Remember that SEL is not a program. It's a lens in which we see our instruction. In the next podcast, Dr. Hilda Martinez-Alba returns to talk about how to use wordless picture books with MLs. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.